you're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Marco. Sean, how long have we been waiting for this moment? This is a moment in the making for many, many minutes. I mean, <laughs> days. I mean, months. Now, this is a, a channel we started with with the idea that we could expand the conversation and, and we're really making that expansion and completely breaking it <laughs> from, from, uh, from everything else we do around technology and cybersecurity and society. And this is all about what you and I like. Things that music. you and I care about or food. Could be, could be food. <laughs> good music are right up there, the top two for me for sure. Absolutely. And I'm gonna say, yeah, good food and uh, good music as well together too. But uh, you know, we we've been careful, maybe a little scared in doing this taking this leap into nothing to do with the intersection of technology, cybersecurity society, because our two guests are two friends. They are from the cybersecurity industry. <laughs> they happen to be in that industry, yeah. Yeah, they happen. You know, a lot of the people that we know, they are in that industry. But as many people as we have known in the industry, we always discover that they have, everybody has another life. Maybe even have two, three different ones. And then they ended up doing this, but they don't forget what they used to do or what their dream is to do even once they retire from this industry. And so... It's a careful leap, Sean, that we took into something completely different, completely unscripted, and for sure, it's going to be completely unedited. So, Sean, are you scared yet? I'm totally scared, but uh, (laughs) I'm sure my mind will be put at ease once our our friends get into the mix here. Yes. Uh, And we have DJ Zeus and High Sage joining us and... Today's conversation is one of a few I think we're going to do around music. Yes. And without being too formal about it, it's taking a look at how music changes us as individuals and together as a society and in, in, in reverse, how society kind of shapes how and where we take music. And there are creators and producers and, and distributors and promoters and all kinds of stuff that goes into making it happen. A lot of that is available to the everyday person, but you still have to be creative, right? And you still have to feel it and and understand to some degree how what you're doing, if you're doing it for yourself, how it impacts yourself. And then presumably if you're doing it for somebody else, that it actually achieves something for them, whether it's defined or not. But I don't know. I'm just talking crap here. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do love music. I do create music, but not like these two guys. So let's get into it. Bring him in. All right. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with DJ Zeus, who uh, ha- has a history of club life <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah. Toronto and beyond. Uh, a bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Sean. DJ Zeus is also known as George Platzis. And uh, spent most of my days these days doing some cybersecurity and business resiliency type work. But music has always been part of my life. Back in high school, one of my nicknames was actually called Music Man. 
Um, there was a kind of a joke going on that in high school, it's like throw an instrument at George and he's going to be able to play it pretty well within three weeks. So uh, I did the piano thing early on, you know, wasn't the biggest fan. I wanted to do drums. Uh, I wanted to be like Animal or Keith Moon. Either one probably inspired the other or vice versa, if you want to go like that. But then played sax, guitar, a um, whole bunch of other instruments as well along the way. And then actually at one point, I never mentioned this to you guys, at one point I actually wanted to be a high school music teacher. That was uh, my uh, short-lived dream. And then I realized, wait a minute, if I become a high school music teacher, that's it. There's pretty much nothing else left that I'm going to do in my life. So I can, I should probably change this up. And I think it was like a week before my university applications were due, changed all of that. But I still maintained uh, playing my stereo, if you want to call it like that. That's the one instrument that I still kept. You know, I still pluck around on the guitar every once in a while. And uh, got into DJing. It was something that I never really planned or thought for. I, when I was a kid, I used to, like, do the fake recording as the radio DJ, like the announcer, but not actually, like, mixing and spinning tunes. Um, my best friend got me into an entire new genre of music I never was into. Uh, it was dance music. Uh, I grew up on classic rock, you know, Stones the Who, uh, some Motown. Um, you know, I, the 80s to me didn't happen until the 2000s type thing. So I completely missed all of that, uh, maybe for the better or for worse. And yeah, I, I ended up DJing. I had a few lucky breaks had to do the dive clubs you know you gotta cut your teeth and all that and then throughout toronto which was sort of like the club heyday in the late 90s early 2000s i was able to play at some of the greatest places up there and uh small places you know lounges 200 people uh the lounge thing i kind of think kind of killed the club industry but we can talk about that later after and i but then we're there are the big places too so you know 2000 people 125 decibels lasers uh, you know, four turntables. I was a vinyl guy, and uh, yeah, it was it was a fun run. I still keep up with it. I make my own mixes every once in a while. Did some music production in there for a while. Almost had a record deal. That's probably a story not for this podcast, but maybe another time. So that that's I don't know three four minute introduction of DJ Zeus, which is a registered trademark in Canada. Oh wow! Okay, because I was trying to, I was thinking, I man, that. take that. There are other DJs' uses. Gonna say that, but you know what? I DJsuse.com is mine. I've, I've been it from way, way back when, I'm and sure. it is a registered trademark in Canada. I'm sure you deserve it. You deserve it all. And uh, let's go to our really good friend. And I've gotta say, they they both have been on ITSP Magazine talking about security. And, uh, and and we think it's special that we brought them together here and they met for the first time. So, hi, Sage. Also, Scott. What's going on, man? Well, it's always good to be here. Uh, so, yeah, just, um, you know, I go by Shaggy on this show, too, for your audience who knows me <laughs> as right. a friend uh, with Shaggy. And it's an anagram for hi, Sage, as it happens, but um, that's another story. Um, yeah, 25 year hacker, but also music producer. Uh, so I've been doing it for a long time. And, uh, and like DJ Zeus uh, came up for me in the late 80s, early 90s um, in Oakland and then uh, all throughout the Midwest and then um, uh, Southern California for all that scene. So definitely some underground stuff going on in those years and uh, formidable years. Went to UK for a while, did Italy for a while and uh, really f fell in love with like a Tao disco and some of the the garage kind of vibe in the UK in the mid 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 nineties or so. Uh, and that just like inspired me. I like, I want to make that track, you know, listen to like Carl Cox at ministry of sound in 94. And I'm like, someday, someday I want to do that. But there was like a 15 year lag in my life where I was married to the wrong person. And, um, and so that never happened. And then after the divorce married to the right person, now we're all into music. And so I've got a you know, full studio. I've been producing for a long time now. Uh, and it's in the style of Detroit techno, Chicago house, uh, a little bit of a pop electro kind of vibes I do with my wife and now my seven-year-old who's becoming the most famous of uh, of my entire family's lineage. As, as I sit here, she's already like becoming famous. It's ridiculous. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, just I'd love to talk music production, music theory. I mean, not music, like traditional music theory, but like theory around like what moves you, you know, DJ Zeus, you want to be a drummer, you like percussion, you like electronic music. 
like there's something to that rhythm to talk about. So I'm really excited to bring some of those insights or just conversation, not even insights uh, to, to the conversation. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, let's start there. Cause that was actually one of the things that, that I was really interested in. And Mark and I were talking about it earlier today is this, this idea that what is generated has an effect on the person listening to it. And I don't know where you want to take it. I'm just going to put this big, broad thing out there. Um, do you create something for a person, for a group of people? Does their response and energy back, assuming it's in person or a live gig, does that change how you do something in, in what you're creating for them? So talk to me about the dynamic of how you create the 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 energy and the excitement that it creates and how that all plays together. Who, who you want to go first? Keep it, keep it, keep the format going. That's... No, you started talking. It's go for it, Shaggy. <laughs> okay. Um, so full disclosure, I am the worst DJ you've ever heard. I've never been good at it. Uh, I've tried it a few times. Everybody thought used to call me DJ Shaggy. I'm horrible at it. I never have been uh, good at it at all. Um, so I, I've gone the uh, the alternate route early on and be, was a live performer with hardware, right? And there was a transition, DJ Juice, and you're familiar with as well, where everybody wanted to bring a synthesizer or a drum machine to the DJ set, you know, starting, like you said, with Richie Houghton or well, um, Jeff Mills. I mean, it goes back to forever, right? It goes back to warehouses in the 80s where you brought your drum machine, quite frankly. So nothing new under the sun. But, um, you know, that's uh, this this aspect of, 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 of rhythm, I think, that we, were, we wanted to talk about, right? Like, this, this notion that when you create a rhythm, it is a, it's a body responsive thing. It's a mental responsive thing. It's a, it's a spiritually responsible, you know, responsive kind of a thing. It could be all three at once. Uh, I was just at a, uh, at dream state, um, with my really good friend who's, you know, I got to give him props, but, uh, he's the alchemist. Um, and they're one of the largest side tr uh, trance groups now in the world. So they played the main stage at dream state in San Bernardino, California, the first time I've ever been on a main stage with, you know, 60,000 people, not four or 500 or 5,000 if I'm really lucky. Right. And it was crazy watching him get to his bucket list. But their whole thing is this helicopter based rhythmic style that is like very unique, but st still formatted and structured to side trance. But only they produce it the way they do and the way they approach that is very scientific and very incredible. And so when you put that on a system that has like, you know, 250, 100,000 watts and speaker towers, you know, break your neck looking up at them and bass bins you can walk around inside. Like, it's pretty incredible to see that and see his bucket list moment was watching them move primarily to the foundation and the beat of these tracks, you know, and I just, I shared it with him because that's really all of our, you know, if we're in this, like that's the, he made it, he did it, he did the damn thing, right? So um, it's, it's when you see a whole tent of 60,000 people literally just doing the exact same things with their bodies, losing their minds. It was it was a uh, transformative for me. I was lucky to be on the stage, even left lucky even to be alive. You know, it made you feel that way. Yeah, yeah uh, I want to pick up there. That's a one of the this is selfish. I'm guessing right now. One of the best feelings that I've ever had in any sort of life event, career, whatever, is when you get that moment of unison in the crowd, where it just it like you see the explosion, you know, and it can happen with a small room or with a big room. Again, I, I, for me, it's different energy. You know, I always found like a, your sort of tipping point was around 12 to 1500 people. Anything over that was a different level of energy. Um, it's, you know, I, I can't get scientific math about it. That's just my swag on that, how it felt. But <laughs> when I, I distinctly remember a few stinker nights in my DJing career that were important learning lessons that, you know, it's, you, you can take it from there and learn, or you could just be hard and set in your ways. And one of the, one of these events, we promoted it really well. This wasn't at a club. We actually did it at a hotel. We got together, you know, we, uh, a bunch of buddies did a great promotion, drew a lot of people, different parts of the city. You know, I think it was around this time, like around Christmas time. And we were like, hey, this is going to rock. I brought up a badass sound system. I, you know, we did all the costs, with, uh, brought up the lights, and the party was flat. And I was really, really upset, like, the next day. I'm like, we had the people. We had, we had the location. We had all that going on. 
And I go, why was it flat? And it was that revelation moment to me. It's, and this, I said, I played good music. And then it was just like that light bulb moment. I go, oh, I played good music for me, not good music for them. The crowd had something different in mind. And I realized, I go, you know, the crowd, you know, they, they wanted something a little bit more poppy, a little bit top 40-ish, whatever. Right? And that's when I learned the importance of being able to, to read your crowd and to be a part of your crowd. One of the big, uh, I'm sure clubs all over do this, but, you know, Toronto clubs really cared about your, your ins and your out numbers. So ins is pretty simple, you know, how many people come in through the club. Your outs is how many people leave. Because it's great to get people in, but once they leave, you know, that's that's not doing any good for you. And again, playing a club and playing a party, very, very different thing because, you know, when you're doing a club or a bar, you actually need to integrate the, uh, the bar sales and all of that. So, well, you know, it, it, I, I, even, I had a formula to that. There was a scientific way to actually, you know, make sure the bar was making money without uh, deflating the dance floor feel. So, in Toronto at the time, when I was there, if you, if you had it, out number of 10% by 1 p.m. Drinking was cut off at 2 p.m. in, in Ontario. Uh, if you had 10% by 1 p.m. Uh, 1 a.m. Excuse me, that was a good number. So what does that mean? It means that 10% of your in numbers have left by 1 a.m. My numbers were 1% by 2 a.m. Meaning that if people came into the club, they weren't leaving. You know, it, it, it was the vibe. Like, I remember, like, one night there was a club called Helium that was renamed Devil's Martini. It was one of the top clubs back there. It's like, one night, like, I literally just, I pressed the start stop button on the Tuck 12, and it's just like, guys, go home. I'm not playing anymore. Like, they just weren't leaving. It was like quarter to four. I'm like, we're done. <laughs> Sorry. See, see you next week. It, 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 it's over. Um, the. And I remember one night I see him, it's Richard, you know, he's the owner of the club and this is when it was renovated into Devils and the place is just going mad at like two o'clock in the morning. Bar bats are dancing on the bar, everything, you know, this is one of the bigger places. And I see him from the other side of the room and, you know, people are hearing this, they can't see, but he's sort of flapping his arms like a sort of like exasperated, like, what's going on? What's going on? So he comes over to the booth, I go, Richard, what's the deal? He goes, George, it's 2 a.m. and the thing's not, like, it's not stopping. It's just going and going. He goes, how are you doing it? I go, Rich, you've got to be a part of the crowd. Not so involved in it that you're losing yourself in the moment. You still need to guide it. Because I would say, like, there are certain songs, like, I could play the same song at 1 a.m. and at 2 a.m. And there would be an entirely different reaction. The vibe that you get from I, I i'm gonna sorry let me take a step back there devil's martini and a few other clubs that i played they had like a no format so it wasn't like all hip-hop it wasn't all house it wasn't all and i played all of these things so there would be nights that i would go from maximilian to nine inch nails to armin van helden like bang 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 right like that i know that sounds ridiculous but you can make it work if you can feel it out and you know sometimes you're gonna have stinkers at night sometimes it's the crowd but it's uh that was one of the most fun things that, so that let, let me let me jump in on this because you are portraying a an experience where you can actually change what you're playing on the spot depending on your audience and other times you just can't one you may have a an exact set of music and that's that's what you do when you're playing live and the other one and and uh, scott i want to go with you on this when your feedback is not on the spot you're creating music what drives you to put it out there maybe with the with a big question mark that are people gonna like it i mean am i what, what how you decide is like i build it and then they'll come because yeah. i like it or are you kind of being like, let me tune it in to know that right now this is hot. And, and when do you feel like you're you're not being real to yourself as an artist and you're just doing it for pleasing people? So that's get maybe deep, but let's go yeah. there. That's as deep as it gets. Honestly, if you sum up, a, <laughs> a, I think, any artist's entire career, it, it, you almost hit a crux there, which is like you go through this 
journey of maturation as a person and an artist and, and all these things. And you go in these loops as well, where today's reality is tomorrow's falsehood, you know, and, and you come back around and, and in all of that, you realize at some point in your age, for me as one, you know, mid late forties is okay. Right. So the, I, I don't have like my current approach to your, to the answer to your question. My approach is like, it, I'm going to not go too deep here, but like, forget the question. Like the question doesn't even matter. Like the second that you're starting now to like really worry about this is, is the right word is the second, like you're really kind of leaving why you got into music in the, in the first place. So now my, my journey into the studio is not the same twice uh, on Monday. It's one day and it's one thing on Sunday, it's a totally other one. And uh, sometimes I'm serving the song. Sometimes I'm serving a dance floor. Sometimes I'm serving no one. Sometimes I'm literally just in, in a m mode and I'm lucky that I hit record, um, you know, because you know, I produce live with, all, with the hardware, right? So for me, it's more of a dance on my feet with, with machines. And I discover my way into grooves sometimes that I know will translate to a dance floor. And in those rare moments, I might stop and pause myself and say, this is something I got to work on in post, or this is something I need to make sure I'm parting out instead of just going off the mixer or whatever the production thing is needed. But I don't usually go in the studio these days to say, I'm going to write the fucking track or the anthem or the, the drop, you know, like the main track at like, you know, the 1 a.m. track, right? Like, I'm not trying to do that anymore. I just don't have any interest. I, I have my best friend who's doing exactly that. And I love that journey. So I participate kind of precariously through him and he'll bounce things on me and I'll give him feedback and all that kind of stuff. But like now it's just much more about my family being in the moment. And with COVID, it's been weird because I'm doing a studio remodel. I haven't had my studio for about eight months now. And um, and so I've not been listening to any techno or music of, of any sort. And I've literally just been walking through life listening to the techno of machines and people and voices and air conditioners and and just kind of life's techno. And I'm writing my own tracks and I've gone kind of fully cerebral in the last four or five months because I know I can't actually go to the studio and I almost don't want to hear techno because it just pisses me off. I can't be in the studio. Right. So I have like the, my own little dance song of, you know, the washing machine going the same time that the dishwasher is. You're like, Oh my God, that's a, that's a triplet, you know, on top of a four on the floor. How the hell do they engineer that? You know what I mean, <laughs> Maytag, you know what I mean? Ultimate drum machine is still a washing machine. You know, <laughs> you just got to listen to it. <laughs> well, let's talk about the machines because I'm, um as I was thinking about this earlier that I had this idea that, that we, the machines enable us to do certain things and then they reach a limit and then we need to change either how we use the machines or the machines need to, to mature or innovate. And I'm wondering how each of you approach the machine as a part of what you do and how you overcome some of the limitations that it presents you to still accomplish what you want to do. So maybe DJ Zeus, you first. So you reminded me of, a, it was an interview or an article from Paul Van Dyke. And he was one of the guys that really took off with Ableton. I will admit I was a slow adopter to some of the newer technologies. Um, and I think you said something along the lines of, man, you know, you, you really got to push the technology. I, th this is paraphrasing. Uh, and he goes, looking back at what I used to do, I'd be bored because I'd drop the track and then, you know, for six minutes, maybe, you know, playing along with the equalizer or something like that. And so I think there have been a few changes for DJs and you know definitely on the production side like the production stuff right now is amazing like you could literally do stuff on your computer right now like the vsts the plugins they're just phenomenal like they they don't sound tinny and ratty like they used to like they sound real real slick you got a, you got a powerful machine you know you could do a lot of stuff on your laptop right now um for me there were a few key changes one was the mixer you know i always used to tell club owners, if you're going to invest somewhere, invest in a mixer. And that was a hard thing because your mixer is sort of like your hub, your brainchild. If, if that sounds like crap, you could have the best sound system ever. You're just amplifying crap at that point. Like, you know, everything is going right into the mixer right there. Uh, 
So this was 1999, August. So I'm in Greece. And, uh, you know, like Scott was saying, he's going to Italy. Like, you know, the, the European house stuff in the 90s, like that French funky house, you know, the, the disco, the garage stuff, like that stuff was just so cool. And, like, it, it, it was taking a while to get to North America. Like, maybe you were lucky on some of, like, the Global Underground CDs or the Ministry of Sound CDs, you know. You, you get a touch of those, the National Anthem ones. You know, Chris, uh, Scott knows exactly which ones I'm talking about here. So, um Whenever I would go over to Greece, you know, I would come back with like just buckets and buckets of of music. Um, and there was this one club. It was uh, across the street from where I was uh, staying that had all the top DJs coming. Summertime. This was in Rhodes, and uh, one of the DJs one night was uh, David Morales. And this is like you know, Morales is one like one of the Godfathers of DJing. And I was like holy crap, man, it's like I'm going to be up close and personal because then you could go like up to the DJ booth. And I remember I just I walked up to him and I asked him, I go, can I just like hang out and watch? Right. And this was the first time that I realized how much you could actually do with pretty archaic technology by today's standards, which is vinyls and mixers. And he had triples of every record that he had. And he was using a Vestex PMC 50, which for me is a very important mixer, especially if you're doing house music. Like that, that was one of like the game changing ones. And then you could say, you know, the Zone 92 was another one, and the Pioneer DJM 800. Like, you know, the, the, those were complete game changers in the industry. Um, and I saw he was like, he was remixing stuff on the spot that if I didn't see with my eyes, I go, there's no way. This is like the same cut. It's just going. It's like, what did he just do? Like, he's phasing stuff. He, he's, he's chopping up a track. I read this was the coolest thing that I saw. He, he's talking up this girl. He's got a martini in one hand, and he's playing one song backwards on top of another song as I'm like, okay, that's it. This is just too cool for me. Then comes in all the, uh, all the digital stuff. I was a really, really slow adopter to it. I wasn't convinced of it because I'm like, why would I use digital stuff to do what I can do with analog? So the the change for me was, and this goes, I'm coming full circle now with the Paul Van Dyke stuff. It's if you can push the technology to what it can really do, like so like I'm a bit I went from Serato and then I went to uh, Ableton Live and I use Ableton mostly in production mode right now, not in uh, clip mode. If you push it, wow, like stuff that I remember that I used to do, like mix, like there was a time that I had four turntables going. And, you know, that's really like the sound that probably Scott would like. It's like, you know, you're real tech. You're just going right there. Like you're hitting anywhere between like 124 to 132 BPM. And you're just layering, layering on top of tracks. You can actually do that now digitally. And I don't need to worry about bit beat mixing anymore because you know that that was a lot that's a lot of concentration when you got so much going on i let the computer do the beat, beat mixing for me right now i'm not trying to admit that but that's why i can lay six tracks on top of each other right now that's pushing the technology scott that's uh that's you, your morales story is like my uh, kevin saunderson's story just you know he had three decks that night but uh when i went up to him afterwards he was still mixing out the last song the lights were on i was the last man dancing and he was still mixing in behind his back without even looking like with his hand, like going the wrong way and perfectly mixed in. And with the other hand, turn up the bass EQ knew right where both were. And he was like sitting there talking to me as chill and calm as you can get. So he's another one of those like that. I mean, so, so I'm on the producing side, right? Like horrible DJ. Um, although I really do appreciate a good mixer because I still run the hardware through the mixer and I, I've always loved uh, Alan and he's, you know, and their filter, of course. But um, for me, the machine like is, it's not just a machine that does what I tell it to do and has predictable inputs and outputs, but rather it's something that I turn on and, uh, and this gets a little spiritual. So I'll get all, even emo emotional on us, but like I, I let the machine dominate and I turn myself into like submissive mode and the, even just like a freaking kick drum on a nine on nine or any of these, these especially the older gear there's no two kicks alike like literally like you can hear it you can hear it walking and running pushing and pulling you can hear the rotational aspect of it 
even if you just have the noise coming in off the mixer, like it's already starting to side chain into the hats just because of the VCA, right? Like there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on with just a kick hitting, right? And I'll listen to that for a real long time before I'll let myself touch a knob or know where I'm going to go or grab a 303 or whatever, right? Like I'm already got like this, this thing just off the kick. And so I try to submit and let the machines instruct me what needs to go next and where it needs to go. And I try to uh, remove myself from the song as I go and serve the serve the song. But it's not the song in terms of how the audience is going to hear it. Rather, it's like what the machines want to hear. It, it's more of a question than like a, an answer. It's it's less of a plan. It's more of a intention to just honor those machines in that rhythm and let that track kind of write itself and get out of my own way. And then if you're really lucky when you do that, that's when those weird ass happy accidents happen that we love to capture and we're lucky we're recording. And that becomes the track. And it wasn't anything that any human on earth could actually preconceive and say, I'm going to be brilliant today and drop this weird thing. Just like uh, remember uh, DJ Zeus, um, um, you know, the, um, the uh, Dirty Birds dropping Who's Afraid of Detroit? You know, and it has a sample of his wife in there that he was just listening to and he heard that melody and he started pitching it. And dun, 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 this was all something he never sat down to write. He wasn't trying to drop like the panty dropper of the next three years combined. That was remixed more than anything else. Like he was literally just like, oh, that's that's kind of a cool little strange idea that I never would have thought of on my own. Hit record, build a track around it, done. And then it dropped. And you're like, are you kidding me? You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I like to just like serve the machines. That's the best way I know how to put it. And no, machines have good days and bad days. You know, you can go into an analog studio that's got a, a, a clock that's based off an audio signal, not even MIDI. So no jitter, no latency, right? All audio is being converted right to a MIDI tick that's literally going out in an amplified voltage to every single machine in the studio with perfect timing. And you hit play. And if you record that on like your, your, your phone or whatever as a cumulative mix, and you come back six hours later and hit record again, and you haven't done anything. It's literally the same four-bar loop on every single drum machine that's going or every single synth that's playing a synth, and you listen to it, it's completely different. And so I used to think that it was my mind and my psyche that was adjusting what I was hearing because I would walk away, do dishes or whatever else, listen to that beat. And if it was something I couldn't get out of my head and I was drawn towards, I knew it was, it was worth working on. And if it kind of pushed me away or annoyed me, I knew it was wrong, right? So... Um, when you but when you walk away, you swear to God, it changes. And it sure enough does. I actually, I've done the experiments. Like, I've done it. Because it used to annoy me that I couldn't tell my friend that, no, it's different. Like, all these machines have their own internal clocks. And they all have a different way of understanding trigger. And, you know, lower or high. And, and, and um, the, there's, there's, the sequencers have logic. And logic built on shitty... And I'm muted. You're muted, Scott. Everybody got muted. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Okay, so so I'm gonna jump in here and say that you know Scott probably did this on purpose to <laughs> demonstrate that machines have a mind of their own, yeah. and they go, "Aha, we're gonna put them all on mute right now." Yeah, He's giving up too yeah. much information. Mute them now. <laughs> the the, the, go, the ghost they know too in the much. and the, and this uh, this podcast they know too much. The, the ghost in the machine just took over. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about that. And I had a different view of this question, but uh, predictability has come up now. So how important is it to be able to replicate what you find you like and want to repeat? And I'm, I'm thinking of traditional classical instruments where you, you can kind of map out on, on a scale, uh, some sheet music or whatever, what you want each part to play and, and the, the, the tempo and the rhythm and the tone and the, the is it staccato or, or soft or whatever it is, all that can be written. And what I hear both of you saying is different ways is that you're kind of letting things go where you want them to go or where, the, where things are taking you. And then the question I have is, do, can you, document that can you get that to beyond just recording it and, and then playing the recording is it a way is there a way to and is it important to be able to repeat something you find works so I, i'm gonna give you the dj 
my DJ perspective, which would be different from my writing slash producing perspective of it. And uh, I'll, I'll let High Sage, Shaggy, whatever we're calling him now for this nanosecond, respond to that. So for quick little story arc here, when you're starting off DJing, you kind of need to play what the market wants. Once you find your groove and people have you as a trusted source, you can then start playing what you want. You develop your own style. You know what? So it's 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 sort of like that breakthrough moment, and that's that certainly happened with me. So I'm speaking from my own experience. It's uh, and I was lucky enough that I had the diversity in genres and styles that like. You know, if you wanted me to play six hours of hip hop, I could do it. If you wanted me to do six hours of trance, I could do that and mix it all up. So um, almost paradoxically, having that ability to be diverse also gives you the ability to be repetitive. Now, here's the danger that I would say with uh, DJing. I knew DJs, and I will, will not call them out. They were so predictable, so repeatable, that you could time your clock to the song that was playing. It's they knew one set. And that set sounded real, real good. But if you went to that club twice, you knew exactly what you were getting. And by the third time, you're like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing this no more. Uh, I made it a personal mission to never do that. Uh, because I think that's lame. I think, you know, if you want to keep your crowd coming back for more, you got to be able to change. You know, you need to be able to work at different speeds. Like if you can only do stuff at 138 BPM and you can't do anything else, you stink. Sorry. I'm just coming like, uh, I'm just saying it how it is. So my plan when I was DJing, like I was probably peak DJing between 2001 to 2000 six saying that uh and there, there was an interesting transition there because i was primarily vinyl i would normally have about 300 pieces of wax with me uh so you know that's 300 songs give or take all the other remixes that you would have and then you know i'd have like a bag of cds all that and get a whole bunch of music there and i would change that every week or every every show like what what i thought i was going into play and sure, you, you're following again the charts. You're going to have your pool of what's hot, uh, then your pool of what you want, you think is going to be new, and you know people are going to attract. It. And then you got some filler music. You got you got to have with that. When I switched to Serato, there was a there was a different problem. It's you had way too much music, and you didn't know what to play. You know because before, when I only had 300 pieces of wax, I'm like, damn, I have that song at home. I could really go right now. Like you felt it. So. I would go in with a general plan because on any given night, you're probably playing, depending on the song length, you know, now the attention span is no more than 45 seconds. But back then you were playing anywhere between 80 to 120 songs a night. Um, I go in with the plan. Um, I'd say that plan was probably about 60% reliable. Uh, and you, you let the, you let the machines, you let the crowd, you let the vibe take it over. If you if you force it too much, it's not going to happen. Again, I'd have a very different answer on the production side about repetition, but at least on the DJ side, uh, you want to be in the ballpark. You don't want to be running the same route. Solid. Yeah. No. So I mean, I'm actually I'm mapping to you pretty much one to one on the production side. Um, in some ways, even though your answer might be different, like some of the cons the constraints are the similar, like uh, in a music production studio with, with techno gear, you know, there's probably whatever, 40 machines if you're lucky, right? And you really only want to use like four or five of them, maybe one, maybe two, you know, if it's a sampler or drum machine. And and so reduction of the space, just like, you know, there's 300 pieces of wax, that's your that's your canvas. And what you do with that canvas is like where the real genius is. You give a really good techno artist two rocks and a bucket, and they're gonna make some techno with it on the beach. Like whether whether you know what I mean, like it's gonna be happening. 
but in the studio it's like you want to confine as well and a lot of times artists get overwhelmed like if you go down the modular synth patch you have these modular boards that take up a half of a wall and i've been there you know uh i've had way too much modular and you could buy the stuff real easy and like put it in but like selling it turning it over and like rearranging the that gets an exponentially shitty problem the longer you go into it and the less music you'll produce, the further down the rabbit hole you go. And so the rabbit hole only has like X value. And when you ding bottom, you're like, I'm never doing this again. But then it takes you three years to even sell the modular and you lose like $50,000. So the problem with modular is it just sucks. But beyond that, like, <laughs> um, you know, you, you'll get me going if you get me going on certain topics. But, um, you know, uh, back to repetition, Sean, trying to meet you where your question was like, uh, yeah, techno, repetition. It's the mother of, of techno, if, if anything is. Like we talked about, a washing machine literally is repetitive, circular-based rhythm. And techno, really good techno, especially really good house too. Trance has like a forward circle, but it's all a different shape type of circle, right? Like a different kind of wobble to the bobble. And it's like, you know, you need repetition for that. But like the, the stuff I produce that I like to produce and that I like to listen to is the stuff that has a certain amount of like um, looseness in that structure. So you're still working on the eights and you might drop the kick on the last beat of the eight bar before the next one, just to set up the next eight bars. Like the oldest trick in techno is turn off the kick. Same thing with DJs, cut the bass, put the bass back in. You know what I mean? Cut the kick, put the kick back in. <laughs> and it, it, they lose their minds every freaking time. It's like, it's a bug in the human psyche. We can't escape the fact that a kick drum or turning the bass back on doesn't like make our minds go crazy. Right. So it's, there's a lot of things that you want to work with where you, you know, the intended result and you need structure. But then once you have that structure, like you have that 300 pieces of vinyl, it's really fun to explore and like break away, let the machines do the talking or let the dance floor tell the DJ how to serve the dance floor. Cause I notice like when, you know, I play live, if the, if the mute starts to get more somber or sometimes like cool down, I might go with it. Instead of like trying to change it or fix it, I might say, you know what, this is this is what they need right now. This is this is where their heart is. This is like, you know, it, it's kind of weird in COVID right now. And I'm the first time I'm playing out again. This happened to me like a few months ago. And like you, you know, it kind of went down and dark. And so I just dropped all the way back to a kick and started everything all over again and built them up to a frenzy, you know, because that's where the energy wanted to go. And sometimes, you know. You go to the raves these days, like the one in San Bernardino, and these kids need like this elevator going up thing every two bars instead of eight bars. It's like this, there's no in trance. It's called trance, but it's not trance the way you and I know trance. It's it's not linear and taking you somewhere because it's chopping you into pieces like a go-bot instead. You know what I mean? And But the kids love it. And so am I wrong? I'm not. There's no wrong or right here. But I know that dance floor is best served with that music at that time. And those kids love it. <laughs> you know. What I mean? you know Let's talk about the artist's side of doing this and, and where you drew a line. Like George, you said something like when you start, you kind of need to go commercial in a way because you need to create your space. And other people may think like, fuck that. I don't want to be the one that is doing commercial. I want to be the one that innovate. And it's easier to innovate again when you're already well known because the people will follow you. I mean, you can tell a lot of really big name artists in any genre of music that have been like, wait a minute, why did you go there? I don't know, you too, for example, you know, that they've going in a lot of different directions. How much that drives the people, the listen, the audience, and and, and vice versa, because, you know, we, we go back to people that on a certain point don't just don't like that stuff anymore. It's old. You know, you, you, you're talking about the 80s. I hated the 80s music in the 80s, and I happen to love it now. I don't know. Maybe it makes me feel young again. But there is a lot of cool stuff <laughs> that was done in the 80s. You know, you two were one of them. So your opinion on what it means to be an artist and what it means to be a successful musician, DJ, creator of music. Scott, I'm going to give, I'm going to be the director here. I'll do, I'll do a short version <laughs> since I just went through the last one uh, for, for some links. Yeah. Go for um, it. Yeah. Like um, it's really weird, dude. It totally depends. The, I mean, I hate saying that answer, but like when you wake up in the morning, if you're there to take on the world and you're, you, you know, it just depends on how you wake up even like it. Um, 
at first we always kind of feel like we want to produce that track that everybody's gonna to dance to because our, our bucket list is to get the DJ to play the damn track. Right. And so you, you do need to or want to cater to that. You have a notion that you might be on a label someday. And so you try to cater to a sound that, you know, that labor is germane to and force yourself into those molds. But then as you go, like I remember one time I came back from Movement Detroit and I did. And I was on stage with uh, Jeff Mills at the closing sta- uh, set his last year doing being the wizard. Right. Biggest techno set, probably techno history. And I was on stage with him with his family. He's playing the 909 drum solo machine uh, at, a, at a solo doing the things he does like the alien he is and i came back from that and i said you know what i'm gonna do the thing that i told myself i was gonna do five years prior i didn't listen to any other music except for jeff mills for one year straight i didn't leave my studio i wrote 458 tracks in a one year sometimes three or four tracks a day uh and i committed to finding my own sound and at that time that was the most important thing like what is my techno well, sure enough, it's not techno I would ever want to dance to and I dance for. It's not techno I would ever buy. I rarely enjoy listening to my own techno, but I fucking love the way I produce my techno. Right? And so it's like this weird thing where I don't really have an audience. Don't get me wrong. I have tons of fans that think my shit is the weirdest, most messed up, badass shit they've ever heard. Pardon, sorry for the French, you know, Sean, I see you wiping the sweat. No, no, no. Uh, it is badass. I've listened to it. Yeah, but you're going to make me get going, right? So, like, I, I don't mean to swear, but, like, it really depends on the artist when they wake up, what their intention is. But any good art requires some form of intention. Mm, yeah. it, it doesn't mean you stick to the intention. But if you go in with, like, nothing, you better be really, really good or really, really high to think that you're good if you're <laughs> going to come out with something that other people are going to understand the structure and appreciate the intention of. Like a good piece of art and canvas stands on its own as a work. It's not a concept. It's a thing that they created. But yeah. A lot of that is, happens because of the artist's discipline to have intention. We, yeah. we lack intention these days. Uh, as producers, as uh, uh, modern DJs these days, it's just like they're really not taking you there. They're just mm. feeding you fast. But they're not feeding you like your journey, your soul. They're not even asking you or whispering to you to, to, to go in this direction that they want to take you. Like it's, you, you would have been my kind of DJ back in the day, just by like what we were displaying, saying earlier, DJ Zeus, because I always wanted to lit, find a set where I heard a track I've never heard before drop from another track that, you know, I never heard that transition. And when I hear a track coming in, you know, back in the 90s, it might not be in key like they all the kids do these days, right? It's a weird sound coming in. You're not even sure if it's music or not. It might be a siren or somebody knocking on the door. And it comes in and like, you're like, oh, and you get that chill and you maybe you identify with it and you just love it. Or maybe it's something you never heard before. I used to live for the tracks I never heard before. George, what's your take <laughs> on that? Uh, wow, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, so... I'm getting flashbacks. This uh, I won't name the name of this club because it's probably inappropriate. Uh, but what you said there, uh, Scott, it was you know I would love to mix in tracks. So this was sort of this, think your peak time is like 12 p.m. to 1:30 p.m. Oh, 1:30 a.m. Excuse me, I'm mixing up my a.m.s and p.m.s again. So my sort of litmus test. Whenever I was looking for tracks, um, it was I had like three piles. Yes, no, maybe. Literally, that's how I would go. Like I would go to the record stores. Like I was in the DJ pools. You know, that's one thing that the, I I was real lucky that a lot of the record labels. Um, here's my French for the episode. When you're in the music industry, by default, you're an asshole. You need to grow out of that mold. And I was lucky enough to do that. That the record labels, like you know. Some they would send me like I'd call them up. I go, hey guys, I'm doing a gig tonight. I need some promo material. And the big labels would send me like 50 CDs, like courier, same day, sort of thing. So what I like to do, and I really went on my gut, and I was really following what was going on in Europe. Also, I gotta admit, like I was checking out those charts. There was if I had a good feeling about a song, I would drop it in between i would sandwich it between songs people knew and they just come up to me and like i remember at this like um tim deluxe it just won't do like if if you remember like 
that song when it came out i don't know how long it was number one but i was one of the first people that played it in toronto one more time daft punk i was one i it was for me that at that era and I've, I've gone away from the question i'll come back to it there i just like there's important technology there are important songs that i think bring together genres like and for me at that time it was one more time by daft punk allowed that sound that highly compressed vocoded sound into the mainstream and there was another song that went the other way share believe that song was pop that went club so all of a sudden you're getting all this crossover stuff that you really didn't have now to go back to the question that oh you started off like do you start commercial and then you go into it and this goes to what scott was saying about intent at first, I just wanted to make mixtapes for my friends. And, you know, I didn't really give, give a crap what I was DJing. That, that was for me and our crew, you know, hop in the car, you know, we go cruising, we do that. And all of a sudden, I was like, hey, okay, I, I want to DJ a little bit more into clubs. Well, my intent changed that. Remember, we started off early that I had this, you know, we promoted this gig. It went, you know, thought went well. It's like, no, I played good music for me, not for them. I wasn't there yet. You, you, you got to be realistic in where, you're, uh, where, you're, where you are in your career and your intent. I wanted to play big clubs. And I cut my teeth on some really shitty small clubs. And then there were a couple of big breaks that just went like, it went from here to right off. Like it, and, and I just ran with it at that point. And by then, I had established my own sound. I was a trusted source. There was confidence. It's like, hey, if I'm going to go listen to Zeus, I know I may not know what I'm going to hear, but I know I'm going to hear something I like. And that that's the trajectory. That was my intent. My intent was to play big clubs. Um, so do I have any regrets about being more commercial about what I was playing early on? No, because my intent changed. My intent right now is... Uh, the mixes that I make for me, they're almost like stories. They're like movies. It's like they take you along a journey. That that's how I feel. You know, uh, Marco, Sean, you guys, I think, have been listening to some of them uh, uh, more recently. It's what's my intent? I and there were certain gigs I knew, like man, I would have to come flap right out and hit with like your bombs. There were other places where you could warm up to it. It's. You do still need that planning. You know, like how we were saying on one of the security uh, uh, podcasts, you know, it's like, yeah, even though you got to do all your planning, it's not going to go how you want. You know, the, the cyber incident is going to take you a wrong way, but you got to be prepared for it. Going into gigs, going into your career, going, you need to be prepared with an intent and be ready for plan B. I love it. And then your stuff is badass as well. Thank you. <laughs> I'm the, I'm, it's a pleasure and an honor to, uh, to be able to listen to both of, of your work. And uh, I, I want to, so I guess directly two on one here, you've impacted me. I, I want to get your thoughts on the greater role of tech, techno music, uh, dance music, club music, and its impact on society. What, how are things different and where do you see it having a role in the future? Scott. Okay. Um, how are things different? Like, but from like yesteryear, like just in after. society, has, has it become more mainstream or is it still kind of underground? I, I, yeah. I'll be honest. I've not been to a rave, so it's weird. It's <laughs> how, weird. How, you know, how we, big of a movement is it? You know, what's impact on society? Greater, greater. Uh, okay. So like the, the rave thing is interesting too. That's definitely a change from what I hear. And a lot of that is just because, uh, quite frankly, like the way the raves in the 90s were powered by certain um, drugs and hallucinogenics and the ones today are powered by God knows what. Um, and it's uh, and it's a mixed bag. And it's very kind of I hear it's like everybody's all over the place and it's hard to really have that same kind of energy. Um, and so a lot a lot of the, the, the that experience, I think, did back then at least depend on on certain certain like party drugs and things like that, that today are very different uh, from what I hear. So um but on the music end, man, like it's, uh, you know, we went through some dark times in, in, in 2020, right? Like, um, not just COVID, but like all the civil unrest and, and, uh, and, and going through that as a society, you know, it, it kind of broke a lot of people in two. 
and a lot of artists really suffered through that. I mean, I've, we all have friends that suffered. Um, you know, I've had uh, some friends that um, killed themselves. You know, quite frankly, there's no other way to say that. And uh, and I had a couple of friends die from COVID in Detroit. You know, these are legends. You know, so you know, God bless them. But um, but tech, but the 2020 being what it was, um, the music was also really dark, really fast, right? Like like the the theme you listen to on the news, the actual cinematic music that the news would come up with was very very different in 2020 than it was. I, I hear everything. I'm I'm weird. Like pitch perfect, hear everything. I hear things in like 3D. I see things in color when I hear them. Um, like, but I I am always like hyper aware of what's around me, and I can hear I can hear 30 conversations at once in a room, and and actually follow them all. And so when I listen to the news, I'm not just listening to like the news. I like I even pick up on the timing and the cadence and the flipbacks and the imagery and all these things. But like 2020 was a dark period for pop as well as like for media news and, and theater um, movies that were coming out. And I think what we're seeing now is a, is like a really strong desire for the human spirit to like break free and discover humanity again. And I think there's a thirst, a genuine quenched, unquenchable thirst now to get back to like the true meaning of, of humanity, like, you know, in the rave time, we'd say plur, peace, love, unity, and respect. And these were great words to kind of model after as a mantra, but like, there's something deeper than even those words. And it's this idea that you're just kinder to your neighbor than they would ever expect you to be, and that you're always helpful, and that you're inclusive, but you're also exclusive. If somebody comes in with a bad attitude, I'm sorry, but like, we're done with that. You know, and that applies to society, this ongoing fractionalized polarized debate we have constantly literally all noise half of it's driven by fucking russian bots i know this for a fact like like i we're done with that as a society we're ready to actually connect the bridges back and find the similarities as humans rather than focus on all of our extreme differences and i think that if that wasn't rave nothing was and i think we're ready for the rave i mean that's that's the only way i know how to say it is i can feel it in my bones i'm not like being a proponent i'm not like a rave fanboy i don't want my techno to come back because i miss it in the 90s no i'm saying like objectively i hear that that innate desire coming back in society and it's manifesting again so george are we are we in uh, in for some russian bot music <laughs> coming, coming our way uh no let, let's leave the disinformation uh <laughs> There was a song, uh, it was a remix, I think it was first dropped live in late 2019. It was an Ali and Fila song. They did a remix of a a plum song, I think. And when I heard it, like, this is your classic melodic trance, like, you just, you, you got your vocals, that airy sound having, like, I go, Man, this this is the song of 2020. I go, this is gonna be this is gonna be the club song. And to Scott's point, you know, a song like that just got wiped into the ether just because it was a different mood. It was too happy of a song. It was too joyful of a song, even though the lyrics were you know a little bit darker there. But the actual like, and I'm like, man, if you, it, it was sort of like. Uh, like one of those uh, Gareth Emery or Paul Van Dyke or, you know, one of those, like, listen, for me, one of the all-time club songs. And it's a, it's dark, but I still love it. It's happy. It's uh, um, Delirium, Silence, The In Search of the Sunrise, Tiesto. It's like the the first time you just hear that, then you got that hi-hat riding, like all the way right through. And I, I, I've heard this story. I haven't been able to corroborate it, uh, that Oakenfold, and this was like a career changer for, for Tiesto. He was playing that, I think, in uh, Argentina on the beach, like a million people. And like he just dropped and Oakenfold said it was like he had never seen a reaction like that before. He just song finished and you know, the the full version is like almost 11 and a half minutes long. And he just picked up the needle and like just boop, put it right to the beginning of the song and just like did it again because it was that energy. (laughs) So it was like that, that yearning, that craving, like, you know, the clubs that when I DJ, the, I, I, I mentioned this early on, it's that bringing together of like 
people are just happy in that moment. Like the only replication, that's not even replication, it's amplification that I've seen. It's like being like at an ACDC concert where you got like 50,000 50, people like all like chanting at the same time, like that's unison, that's energy. And that is regrettably gone right now. And I think to Scott's point that like some people want some of that back. And I think, uh, I think it would do society well if uh, we let it up. You guys know I'm a risk management guy. If it, there's no such thing as zero risk. Yeah. And I think too many people have been pushing the zero risk view for reasons I will not get into on this, but those are my own views. Yeah. Dude, Scott, that, I think you're on the edge of the seat to say something. I, well, I just, uh, first of all, I just got to give it up for like dropping in search of sunrise on this. I mean, that's a reason why Marco and Sean, you guys brought us together. If it was just for that moment, I'm happy. Um, cause, uh, yeah, I, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot more there, more for than for this podcast. But there's this idea when you're playing soccer uh, that you know. I, I grew up in like Latin America playing soccer, so in Spanish, right? So you, you get on the field and you describe how the game is going or how the other team is, and you talk about like the rhythm. And it's weird because there's not no real good way to do that. When I got back to America, you know, I started to ask people, "What's their rhythm like?" and it was an empty statement in English. Like, what do you mean they're fucking rhythm? They're soccer players. Uh, but in Latin America, it meant something, you know, and, and, and there's a way to understand the other team or your own team or your own game, the game of two, as a rhythm. And it's this notion that, you know, like, you, you know, you go after you play enough soccer, like it becomes home. You know, when you're not playing soccer, it feels weird, right? It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You step on that field and, like, you're there. And I think music is like that. Like, the right music with the right rhythm for you and it's like your life song, like this hurts of sunrise. It's like, I could, the world can crash, you know, the, all the worst things that can happen that you can ever imagine as a human that you can endure. If somebody puts on, yeah, I get emotional, but you know, album, the number five or number six, you know, either one of those, for some reason, those two um, of that series, just, it will, it will heal all. I'll get through that night. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that can um harm me more than that music and heal me <laughs> I, I think i want to okay. stop it here because i know we could go way way longer and and i think that your final points both of you made really really important statement i, I think music is that and is you know community and it, it's when you look back it's it's made revolution it's it's a state changing in our society and and I think also, as you just said, Scott, at a personal level, music can heal you for sure and motivate you. And there is a book. I want to close with this. There is a book that it's uh, I'm reading right now, and it's called This Is Your Brain on Music. And uh, it's a neuroscientist called Daniel J. Levitin that wrote it. And he talks about music as a in the history like how your brain perceived music and why it's so important for us it gets it's it could really literally be a medicine or or a stimulant or something that relaxes you and so forth so i'm glad that we had this first conversation of uh, audio signals with two good friends and very very inspiring people like like you musicians music lovers and sean the mission for us is to have many more conversations like this. Yep. Music and, and otherwise. Uh, now, and I we may a... end up talking about, sorry, I, I'll let you finish, but the next one may be blues and jazz. They may yeah. be I heavy metal, death other, metal, whatever. Other, we'll go. Uh, other ideas in mind and guests in mind as well. But I, I want to, and we often talk about this in our other conversations, Martha, that there's the technology and then the result of the technology. But before all of that, is the human behind the technology so we can talk about music moves us and heals us but i want to take a moment to thank both of you because both of you help that become reality right as do your your peers and colleagues in the music industry so with that i want to uh, say thank you scott and george i sage and dj zeus respectively for a fantastic conversation uh, to more music. More music. Absolutely.
be grooving. And for those listening, uh, we'll include some notes in the show notes for links to the profiles for uh, these two incredible human beings and some of the work they've done and, and potentially even some of the, the references we made books and other, other things here today. So thanks everybody for listening. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.